That's the sound of Russia's weaponry, and it's been heard in Syria since 2015. That's when Russia joined the years-long war there, and that became a game-changer for Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. Russian jets in northwestern Syria is Moscow's declaration today that it is now bombing alongside Assad's pilots. Russia started a new war in February when it invaded neighboring Ukraine. The months-long buildup of Russian troops on the border with Ukraine has turned now into an invasion. And some Syrians, who are all too familiar with Russian President Vladimir Putin's so-called Syria playbook, are showing signs of solidarity with Ukrainians. So what can the Syrian conflict tell us about the Russian invasion into Ukraine? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. It's been more than a decade of war in Syria now, and so far it's left at least 350,000 people dead and forced millions to flee their homes. What started as a civil war escalated into an international one. Russia joined that fight in 2015, bringing a powerful military force. I am Natasha Hall. I am a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies at the Middle East Program. Natasha lived in Syria and worked with the White Helmets, or Syrian Civil Defense, a volunteer search and rescue group in the country. And I have been working in humanitarian emergencies in conflict-affected countries for about 15 years. So, Natasha... This episode is coming out as the world is marking 11 years since the beginning of the uprising in Syria that eventually devolved into war. And this year, there's also emphasis on another key moment in that war that's taken on a new light, and that is September 30th, 2015. What can you tell me about that day? At the time... Shal Assad had a very minor bit of territory, important because it was Damascus, but a minor bit of territory in the country. He was struggling to fight an opposition, and Russia saw an opportunity. It saw an opening. It saw a West that was not willing to intervene on behalf of Syrian civilians. And in September 2015, it took that opportunity and it came into Syria with shock and awe. Shock and awe, that's a military tactic used to gain rapid dominance over the enemy. What kind of intervention are we talking about? This is air forces, ground forces, weapons. What was it? So they basically controlled the skies and launched many of the destructive airstrikes. That allowed ground troops, local ground troops, proxy militias that were there, pro-regime militias from Iran, Afghanistan, but also Syrian local troops to focus on the ground. So prior to 2015 and their intervention, the Syrian military was frankly lacking in what it had. It was resorting to filling oiled barrels with explosives, dumpsters with explosives, and just dropping them out of helicopters, which were extremely destructive. But helicopters are fairly slow moving. You can hear them. It gave civilians time to take cover, and they got used to that. But with the Sukhoi jets, the fighter jets, 
that the Russians were able to bring en masse to Syria. Civilians that I spoke to didn't know what hit them. They couldn't take cover in time. From your vantage point today, take me through the line that you would draw from that day in September in 2015 to where Syria is now. Oh, that's hard. I think prior to 2015, the situation was devastating, but there was still hope that people were kind of on an even playing field a bit. After 2015, we see sort of the steady decline in hope. And that really started with the fall of Aleppo. I remember that time very well. In December 2016, after intense fighting and siege, Assad's forces took Aleppo, Syria's commercial hub and most populous city at the time. The 1990s had the siege of Sarajevo, the 2000s had Grozny. Today, we have the fall of Aleppo. Russian leaders say the fall of Aleppo is a major victory. All of the donor governments that had generously donated aid in Syria were, you know, rushing together to see what they could do to save Aleppo. And it was obviously, it was too late at that point. And slowly you saw all of these pockets of territory around the country fall in a similar fashion. Siege and then bombardment and then forced surrender and forced displacement. Until you get to today, where the Assad regime has about 70% of territory in Syria. I think a lot of people wouldn't want to say it, but a lot of people would say that they are resigned to him staying in power. But you still have millions displaced that will never return. There's less violence than ever before, I think, now at this very moment. But hope is also probably at its lowest point. Yeah. Of course, we will never know the actual exact answer to this. But from your analysis, from what we knew about prior to the Russian intervention, would any of this be the case today if Russia had not gotten involved? We might be in a different place. I don't know what that place would be. You know, Syria is a shell of a country right now. That might have always been the case regardless. But certainly you would have had a government that was more willing to compromise. There's a reason that there are no positive outcomes from that because one side feels like they've won already. So why would they compromise anything? And so I think that's the difficulty moving forward. So now looking at a different war, Ukraine. Ukraine under attack. Military bases, airports and aircraft have been targeted and bombed. I've heard people make mention of the Syria playbook that Russia is using the Syria playbook when it comes to the invasion of Ukraine. What does that mean to you? And are there parts of it that you see Russia using in Ukraine? Yes, I'm getting, I'm already getting a little bit of PTSD when it comes to Ukraine and looking at the images of critical civilian infrastructure being damaged and nuclear facilities being taken over. It knows how to increase the costs for civilians so that they start to question whether resistance is worth it. And that's the playbook in Ukraine, without a doubt. We're also seeing double-tap strikes, which 
I'd love if you could explain what that means. And we're seeing besieging cities. Are these things that you would count as part of that playbook, things that we saw in Syria as well? Yeah. So a double tap strike is essentially when there a certain area is hit, a building, whatever it happens to be. And obviously people are immediately going to gather around, especially search and rescue workers like the White Helmets. But it could be emergency medical staff and, and, and whoever it might be. They then approach the site in order to save people's lives. And at that moment, another strike comes in, a double tap. And it hits those people that are absolutely vital to the survival of everyone else in the community. So it hits these health practitioners, it hits uh, civil defense workers. The idea is to completely destroy civilians' means of survival. In order to avoid that, Natasha and others who work tirelessly to save lives in Syria are trying to pass on the lessons they learned during that war. I've actually just been in touch with some of my former colleagues at the White Helmets. We had developed together community preparedness manuals and safe havens and construction guides. And we're looking to try to translate those into Ukrainian for the Ukrainian people so that they don't have to, you know, learn off the cuff like Syrians did and like so many others around the world. I wanted to ask you about other examples of solidarity that you've seen. We know back in 2014, during Russia's annexation of Crimea, Syrians opposed to Bashar al-Assad shared messages of solidarity. Are you hearing similar messages from Syrians today? Yeah, absolutely. Syrians are devastated by what they see in Ukraine. Because no one came to their aid, because no one stopped Putin, what's happening in Syria is happening in Ukraine. And, you know, amongst those examples are the white helmets reaching out and trying to do whatever they can in Ukraine to train people to ensure that civilians know how to take cover and protect themselves. Walk me through logistically what it is like to be someone who is trying to ensure civilian safety when an air force comes in, a proper air force comes in that makes that so much more dangerous than it was before. So for myself, I've been looking into self-protection strategies in war for quite a long time now. A lot of this was just learning off the cuff. So I saw people in Aleppo sewing together bed sheets to, this is in the initial part of the conflict where it was still sort of house to house fighting. And they would hang these bed sheets, these huge bed sheets over top of streets to disguise the people below from snipers. So the idea was to create these sort of safe corridors for people to pass through. And then we started entering the sort of the sieges and the air war. And that, of course, really upped the ante. And the challenge was telling people that they needed to take cover because if they took cover, then they were most likely to survive. And so once you had really drilled that into people, which takes a long time, the Russians intervened. And they intervened with these really powerful weapons, some of them something called thermobaric bombs, which are uh, really even more devastating underground. 
The flamethrower actually, or, or rocket launcher, uses thermal weapons with thermobaric warheads, and essentially what that does is it sets the air on fire and then sucks the oxygen out of people's lungs. You heard that right. It's a bomb that sucks the oxygen out of people's lungs. And it's not the only weapon of its kind that Russia has been accused of using in Syria, and now in Ukraine. So we tapped a colleague of ours who's an expert in this topic. He's who our newsroom turns to to explain the weapons of war. My name's uh, Alex Skatopoulos. I'm a journalist at Al Jazeera English, and I'm also a defense analyst for Al Jazeera English TV. In July of last year, Russia's defense minister announced that the military had tested 320 weapons in Syria. And now we are hearing talk of Russia using the so-called Syria playbook in Ukraine. When you hear that phrase, the Syria playbook, what does it mean to you? What comes to mind? It means urban combat. It means high levels of destruction. The city is the battleground of the 21st century. And it also means um, airstrikes. Uh, the Russian war, in part, was an air war, um, fought at quite a high tempo, um, daily airstrikes being launched. Some of the weapons, I suppose, that were used for the first time in that tail end of the Syrian conflict, more to attack ISIL targets than anything else, we saw the caliber cruise missile being used for the first time in combat as well. And sure, lots of countries have cruise missiles, but this has a significant range. You heard Natasha mention the use of thermobaric bombs in Syria. Well, Ukraine's ambassador to the U.S. has accused Russia of using them in Ukraine, too. So we asked Alex to tell us more about them. The Russians that have in their arsenal what we call thermobaric weapons. A thermobaric weapon has two charges in the weapon itself. And the first charge detonates, spreading a large cloud of fuel droplets. Now, these droplets, very fine in nature, highly combustible. It spreads over a wide area, infiltrating cracks in doors, anywhere it can get in. So those fuel droplets will also infiltrate civilian bunkers. Mm. People will find people sheltering in basements and will also penetrate their lungs as well. And then this, the second charge detonates this giant fuel cloud that has insinuated itself everywhere, burning everything and producing an overpressure. You will see is this colossal cloud of flame, this kind of semicircular cloud of flame. And you will hear this huge thump. So you've got this tremendous pressure that lasts for an awful long time. It uses up all the oxygen, creates a partial vacuum, that has a devastating effect on buildings and also on people. So, yeah, and that's been used successively in Syria, in built-up areas. The International Criminal Court is investigating possible war crimes in this Russian operation. And NATO Secretary General has said Russia used cluster munitions, these big bombs that contain lots of little bombs in Ukraine. We have seen the use of uh, cluster bombs. Uh, we have seen reports of uh, use of other uh, types of weapons. These are against international law. Can you tell us why? Well, uh, cluster munition is a bomb that has a series of submunitions in it, which kind of a charge bursts this thing, as it say, over the target area, scatters all these bomblets. 
The problem with them is that if you use them in a built-up area, of course, then you're going to be um, killing excessive amounts of civilians. There's another problem as well that they, the bomblets themselves have quite a high failure rate. And this isn't a new problem. In 1979, the Soviet Union, which Russia was part of then, started a war with Afghanistan. They used these weapons during that time. They also tend to be of a bright color, like a orange or red or yellow. So what was happening in, say, places like Afghanistan, children were picking these bomblets up. They were still intact. They hadn't detonated. Of course, would then go off, either killing the child or maiming them. And what the world saw in Afghanistan, in terms of war, it also saw in Syria. And now it may see it again in Ukraine. Natasha talked to me about how events in Ukraine reminded her of one particular story involving a displaced family. I think about the kids a lot that I met early on in the Syrian conflict. And one little girl in particular, I always remember, I I guess I interviewed her, you could say, uh, in a hospital in Rehanli, which is a, a border town in Turkey. And she had been hit in an airstrike. This was, I think, just after the Russians intervened. And she was about, I, w- I want to say, six or seven years old. And her mother was with her, sitting next to her. And her mother sort of told me in a whisper that if her daughter did not get the treatment she needed, she'd be paralyzed. And that her little girl didn't know that yet, and also didn't know that her brother was killed. And so I went in to just to talk to the little girl for a little while, and I saw her reach out and touch her arm and say, don't cry, mama. It's okay. Don't be sad. And obviously I was shattered watching that, but it also, I think, showed me the great resilience of these kids, if we can give them the treatment, the protection, the lives that they deserve. They had relatives that tried to get to Europe but drowned en route, her uncle. Her father was, you know, forced to be a fighter because there was no other means of income. And that has become a Syrian story. The longer this draws out for the more that will become a Ukrainian story, too. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Ruby Zaman and Alexandra Locke, with Ney Alvarez, Nagino Liai, Amy Walters, Priyanka Tilve, and me, Malika Bilal. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. Aya Al-Milek and Munira Al-Dusari are our engagement producers. And our executive producer is Stacey Samuel. To follow the news we're following from around the world, check out our Twitter and Instagram feeds. We're at AJ The Take. We'll be back.